Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. Over the weekend, we found out that uh, Ginger Baker died. And my first thought was, how old was he? How many more years have I got? That was the actual first thought I had. And then the second thought I had was, I better tweet this to my followers because they're not going to hear about Ginger Baker passing along. And then the other thing I thought of was, if anybody really cared about Ginger Baker, they would have done all their caring about Ginger Baker in the 1970s when he was still kind of doing things. And I thought, why this? there was an eruption of what I'll call the, uh, the resurgence of adoration for Ginger Baker and Cream and anything he did. But uh, that's about all Ginger Baker did. He's famous for being in Cream and then kind of being in Blind Faith and then Ginger Baker's Air Force and Atomic Rooster and whatever else he did, things that are now obscure. And yet there's this resurgence of adoration for Ginger Baker, one of the best drummers ever, which he isn't. He's a scoundrel. He's a person I would never want to play music with. He's not a very likable man. And yet there's this nostalgic thing that happens for these artists that, that, that are now, you know, passing with a fair, at a fairly regular rate. In fact, I, over the weekend, I saw someone tweeting, it's like, first Bowie, and then so-and-so, and now Ginger Baker. It's like, well, you know, it is what it is. These people aren't, nobody lives forever. Uh, Unless it's on vinyl. You cannot defeat entropy. The thing that really annoys me about Ginger Baker is that he he likes to take credit for the way Sunshine of Your Love goes. And there's a story he tells in some documentary I saw where, you know, they played him the riff and it suggested to him American Indian tom-toms. So that's why the song goes dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And I'm like, you know, you don't have to take credit. You don't have to tell us. How, how good the arrangement is and that you thought of it. it. It's not necessary. I mean, Eric Clapton has never come out and said, by the way, if you listen to the solo, you'll notice that the first few notes are the melody to Blue Moon. <laughs> now, that's something that people figure out by themselves, and it's fun to figure it out. But Ginger Baker insisted on, on, on being, uh, I guess he wanted to dominate in the band. Anyway, I've said enough about Ginger Baker, I think. I think the Ginger Baker enthusiasm came in 2012 with a documentary called Beware of Mr. Baker. And I saw this on Netflix or Amazon, and I didn't know much about him except that he looked kind of like Joe Walsh being really angry. And when I saw him in the documentary, I thought, this is not a person I would like to have a beer with. It's funny, on Facebook, someone who is a musician I won't name, in a brief discussion about Ginger Baker mentioned... At some sort of place they were performing, he ended up getting in an elevator with Ginger Baker, and Ginger Baker spent the whole trip complaining and ranting and yelling about things, and it continued even after he left the elevator, he said. (laughs) He just was an unpleasant person. But he doesn't represent the music. He represents an era that's dying. And we talked about this in an episode recently, and I'll link to it in the show notes, about how these musicians are getting older, and a lot of them are going, and I had a email conversation with a friend a little bit older than us who was saying the same thing is seeing so many of these 
musicians go that he saw in his youth. He's British and he saw a lot of these people perform live. And it's a nostalgia. I, you know, Thomas Wolfe said, you can't go home again and you can't go back. You can, you can listen to the vinyl, like you said, or you can even look at the video of the Cream Farewell concert at Royal Albert Hall. I'll put a link to the show notes to that in YouTube. And, and actually, I found this, someone mentioned on Twitter, the commentary by the announcer introducing this is really quite interesting. It's worth listening to for a couple of minutes. But this is nostalgia. This is our youth. I, I think David Bowie was a bit different because he was a little bit younger. He seemed like someone who was going to last a long time. You know, we saw Mick Jagger had some heart issues and an operation. And Mick Jagger doesn't seem like he's going soon, yet Keith Richards seems like he should have gone decades ago. So it's really uneven. You know, I've seen Dylan live a couple times in the past few years, and he's 76, 77. He's doing okay. Remember the old bluesmen who started playing in the 60s when that sort of rediscovery of, of Delta blues and all, they were in their 70s and 80s and they were still playing. And there was a second blues revival in the, in the 70s. You know, a lot of these guys came in the early 60s and then came back again in, in the 70s. And yeah, they, in fact, the older they got, the better they got in some instances because their fame preceded them and a lot of good musicians wanted to play with them. I'm thinking right now of John Lee Hooker doing uh, an album with uh, with Canned Heat. Um, really a superb, superb work, but he must have been, he was in his 70s, I'm sure, when that was recorded. I think for a lot of those musicians, they weren't making money as musicians for a long time, so they weren't playing as much. Then they got rediscovered. They were making money. They were playing more, practicing more, and they, they refined their styles and their skills. But we're, we're seeing a period when they're, they're just going to all start dropping really soon. I saw a picture on Facebook this morning of Robert Plant, Jack Cassidy, and Steve Earle. Together? Yeah. Really? At, like backstage at some festival. Yeah, it's an interesting trio. But when you look at them, to, these are like three old guys. They could have escaped from the nursing home and gone out <laughs> on a jaunt or something. They're, they're all going. And... It's kind of, you know, we look at this because this is our youth. So when we were teenagers, they were five or 10 years older than us, right? Some a little bit more. But they were the ones who were making the music that was really popular. I don't think we're going to see that again in the 80s or the 90s because you didn't have the, – the pyramid wasn't the same. In the 70s, there was a pyramid with a handful of A-listers. And then after MTV came, there were – you know, a lot of A-listers. Anybody could, anybody could make a record. Well, anyone could be an A-lister <laughs> for 15 minutes. And so you had a lot of people who, were, who had short-lived fame, but it's only these 60s, 70s foundational musicians that built careers out of this. That's right. That's actually interesting because there aren't all, I mean, there are certainly some careerists from the 80s and 90s. There are some, you yeah. too, for example. But I mean, I think there were many, many more that are... are We've had more time to analyze them. They've had a bigger chance to influence. Their longevity compels them to have worked their way into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as it is. It's like you get there by just by still being here. <laughs> well, also, there weren't as many musicians. There weren't as many bands. And they were more influential. More people, a larger percentage of the population bought their music and listened to their music. Music hadn't fragmented as much. Hip-hop hadn't developed. So that sort of rock and roll, 60s, 70s rock and roll, was really the monolith of music for a long time. And, and that changed, too, with the arrival of, 
um, emo and grunge and hip hop and all these subgenres and and now you know electronic dance music and everything means that there's a fragmentation. If you think, I don't know if we talked about this on this podcast or if it was another, you look at a popular TV show, right? And you see how many people were watching it. And people were saying before the Game of Thrones finale, this was like the most popular TV show in the world. Now, I don't know about the world, but I looked at the stats in the US and they were around 10 million per episode. Back in the 70s, everyone, you know, 30, 40 million people would have watched Archie Bunker or MASH or whatever. Well, that's you you talk about fragmentation. If you go back to the 60s and 70s, you had your streams of information were big and there weren't that many of them. So you had four or five TV channels, you had four or five radio stations, you had three or four movie theaters. Now we're at a point where you can have your own personal radio station and nobody else is listening to it and you, you could be listening to the most obscure music ever and it would never rise to popularity. But back then, stuff did because everybody was judging it. Everybody was listening to it. And um, you don't have but that But as you now. say, there was no other way to listen to music. That's right, there wasn't. You know, even in a city like New York, we had two FM radio stations and we had a couple college stations, and then we had the AM radio stations for the pop music. But even the pop music, there were, what, three? ABC, NBC, and something else. WABC, WNBC, and I don't remember what the other was. WINS, you give us 22 minutes, we give you the world. But that was all news. So as you say, there weren't that many streams. There were big fire hoses that everyone heard. Something like Born to Run. When Born to Run came out, everyone heard that song. You couldn't avoid it move 10 years ahead, and the most popular songs were things that, you know, it'd be popular in a niche. And the other thing, too, is that a lot of this stuff was not only, um, uh, you know, in big pipes, it was, it was appointment. You had, to, you had to be there to watch it or hear it, or you had to go there in the case of a movie theater or something, you know, or a concert. You had to go. Concerts still exist, don't they? They do. If you can afford them. Yeah. So that's interesting. We sometimes come to our Monday recording date without necessarily having a topic. And yesterday, I was doing the New York Times crossword puzzle, and there was a reference to the song Take It Easy by the Eagles. And that made me think, this is in the New York Times crossword puzzle. This is how monolithic it is. This is how perennial it is, that it's just, it's lived for 30, 35 years almost, that song. But 30 years ago, the clue would have been to some popular song from the 50s or the 40s or some standard, you know? No, it wouldn't, because as you've said many times, in the 60s and 70s, people didn't listen to music that was 40 years That's, older. No, well, I'm talking about a standard, though, in a crossword puzzle. Come on, like uh, yeah, melancholy yeah, blank, okay. you know. Whatever. Yesterday, one of the answers was George M. Cohen. So there's an example. But that's it's kind of rare. So anyway, that made me think about all these artists from that period who have been chugging along without producing anything new and just keep performing and keep touring and keep breaking up and getting together. And everyone, so I live an hour from Birmingham, second biggest city in the UK, and every once in a while I look to see what's on. And my, my partner and I, we go to classical concerts regularly, but I've never gone to what they call gigs. So I'm looking at what gigs are on this week. Well, Midge Orr, Vienna and Visage 1980 tour. 
Wow. I want to see Midge, that. Midge, 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 your Midge, er, who, who would choose to call himself Midge? I understand well, I that think it's, it's a nickname. It's Jim turned around, but I always Midge? thought it was because he was short and it was Midge was short for midget. I don't remember him being short. So I saw Ultravox live once would have been in 1980. I had discovered the first three Ultravox albums with John Fox and they really blew me away. And I was disappointed when Fox left the band and Ultravox came to New York. I saw them in a small place like Danceteria after the Vienna album came out. This was like, they were all dressed in European greys, to quote a John Fox lyrics. They were all wearing long coats inside this disco and it was steaming hot. I thought it was really kind of boring. It's kind of like craft work, but with a little bit more movement. I saw Al Stewart, probably 1976, 77. St. John's University, Queens College, one of those places. I loved Year of the Cat. I thought that was such a cool album. Wow. Totally. Come on, you said before the show that you've always liked Al Stewart, too. No, I, I'm not an Al Stewart guy. I'm a Major guy. Oh, sorry. You're a Major, right. Yeah. Um, I like a lot of his solo stuff. And I, I, uh, several years ago, I mentioned it to a, a person who is English, and they laughed at me. And they said, you like Major? Nobody likes Major. And I'm like, well, why? What, what, what's the problem? Because is he like over, overexposed or poppy? Or what's the deal over there? I don't know. But I, I really enjoy his music, mostly because it's synthetic. And when I first started listening to him, I was also getting into synthesizer music. And I, I just like the way he, uh, you know, he, one-man band sort of stuff. And he's, he's a great producer. But anyway, enough about yeah, Majur. Vienna he's, might be he, one Majur of the... is not on death's door, so he doesn't, he doesn't... We don't know that. We don't know that. Oh, you're right. Uh, he's don't. still on tour, though. Yeah. Um, Vienna might have been one of the first really big pop hits that was like mostly synthesizer yeah that, that whole album vienna yeah um I, I just skipped ahead a couple pages and they've got steve hackett genesis revisited 2019 he has been doing tour steve hackett has been touring with these different themed things in fact in my twitter feed if i can pull it up really fast um he is um steve hackett selling england by the pound and more is uh is a cruise that he did Right, so cruise, yeah, yes. those cruises. You remember that the the, yeah, the, yeah. the prog rock cruises yeah, and all. Yeah. So here's another one: John Mayall, 85th anniversary oh tour. Oh my God, is he still alive? <laughs> hey, I'm just, I'm just going to go a couple more pages, and I thought go, he was, oh my but God, I thought he was old in the 70s, and now yeah. it's like, you know, <laughs> seriously, I thought he was a very old man. Oh well. So in November we get Ronnie Wood. I know he's old. The Ronnie, next day, Ronnie, oh, Ronnie Wood doing what? With, with who? Anybody coming with He's got his own him? band. Anybody interesting in it? Does it say? Uh, let's see what it says. If I click on read more, it says, Artist, author, producer, and raconteur Ronnie Wood returns to his greatest love, music with the release of new album Ronnie Wood with his Wild Five, Mad Lad, a tribute to Chuck Berry. So it's going to be a live tribute to one of his all-time musical heroes, Chuck Berry. That ought to be good. Nothing about who's in the band. But the next day, Adam Ant. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, so these guys, so these guys they, they've got to make a living. They're living on a reputation. They haven't, for most of them, haven't put out any new music. I wouldn't count Ronnie Wood's new album as new music any more than Keith Richards when he puts out an album. It's just they want to make an album, but no one cares about it. It doesn't. Well, I don't know. I might be interested in that Ronnie Wood album, to be honest with you. Would you buy it or would you stream it? I'd listen to it 
and put it away. Right. And so that's the thing. This is why they're still touring, because in the 70s and the 80s and through the 90s, they were getting royalties from album sales. They're not getting it anymore. The only way they can make money, unless they have a huge back catalog, is by touring. So we've gotten to the point, back to the Eagles, a friend of mine wanted to go see the Eagles in Portland. And it was in a, like a hockey arena, basketball arena. And a lot of the tickets had sold out, but it didn't sell out entirely quickly. And he was looking at seats in the back of the arena at something like $275 each. Wow. That's just ridiculous to charge that much. I'm, obviously, there's enough baby boomers to pay for it, but it is kind of ridiculous. Well, if you're an Eagles fan and you're our age, $275 is, I, I mean, if you're a fan, I, I, I don't think it's unreasonable but considering the sticker shock, if I was just to wake up from 1980 and find out what ticket sales were, I'd be shocked. But Well, if you factor in inflation, so it's maybe half that, but we're talking about seats in the back. The front seats are probably 500, if not more, and there's VIP packages and, you know, the whole thing. And, and I just find that... Hotel stays, dinners. Yeah. I know the, the dead and company do packages like that. You can't, you don't get to meet the band, but you get a hotel and food and drinks and you get some swag and like... Guitar picks. Uh, free <laughs> laminate and yeah. Or, you know, I think they let you um, attend the sound oh, sure. show. That, that might be one of the perks. Which would be nice, you know, be 20, 30 people listening to them sound check. But we've gotten to the point where there's this whole generation of musicians that even if they did produce new music, wouldn't make any money from it. So the only way they're going to survive is by touring. You know, how many copies of Ronnie Wood's album are going to sell? It's interesting. You know, it's... 10,000? It's, when we talk about classical music, and of course that's the oldest music there is, um, the classical music doesn't sell, but it... It's available. Wait, I, I'm seeing something here. What is it? Tell me what it is. What it, what well, they... classical music, you don't have the issues of royalties except for living composers. But living composers, as we discussed with Timo Andrus, who was on our show a couple years ago, who was, who was a young composer who was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, their main income is through commissions from orchestras, from soloists. They don't make much money from royalties. Sometimes one of them will get a movie to score, and they'll get money from that. But there aren't too many who do that. So the, the classical music money comes from the performances, which the concerts are not cheap, but they're not as expensive as the Eagles. This said, I've never been to see a proper opera in a proper opera house. And I wanted to go to Glyndebourne. And we were looking in the summer, and I think the cheap seats were 135 pounds. That's getting up close to $200. And that's just, that's a lot of money for something, you know, just to drop in that you not entirely convinced about. Right, just to, just to check it out. Yeah, whereas you can get theater tickets here for 10 pounds, you know, if it doesn't sell out, obviously. But anyway, I, I think the whole point is we're coming to an inflection point in music of that 60s, 70s music pre-MTV, because MTV is really a good cutoff point. MTV is shortly after the Walkman, and this is when music consumption changed a lot. Cable, radio yeah. stations broke up, things yeah. like that. All these things are happening. So we're at this inflection point where the older artists... They're not making any new music for the most part, and they have to tour to make money, and they're all going to die. <laughs> and then we're not going to have that same sort of pantheon of artists who are the elder statesmen who are still around. There are going to be some musicians who retire from performing. Peter Frampton is on his farewell tour. I think it's hearing issues. I, 
I, I thought he had uh, like MS or something. Oh, that's what it is. Some muscular thing. It's not MS, but something similar. So he won't be able to play guitar very soon. So you'll have musicians like that who just aren't performing because they can't, because they're old. But for all these other musicians, you know, everyone who was at Woodstock, everyone who was at Isle of Wight and all, you know, the early 70s stuff, we're getting to a point where they're all going to go one way or another. A couple of years ago, I said, I remember saying, they're going to come fast and furious because, as you say, the Pantheon is pretty big. It's a huge Pantheon, and it's, it's a certain generation of, you know, maybe 10, 15 years where this is where they all are. And there were so many stars in the 60s and the 70s because, as you say, everybody got to be famous for 15 minutes. I mean, that continued for a while. So you're going to have these important artists coming and, and going um, fast and furious at some point. And I, I, I'm, I'm actually surprised we haven't gotten to it yet. But now that I see that Ginger Baker's 80, that seems to be about, that, you know, 80... 80 seems to be about the cutoff point for a lot of people, whether either, you know, either stop performing publicly or I don't think the stone. Except John, John Mayo. Well, John Mayo, all he needs is a stool. 85. You know, and, you know, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, hey, I saw Ian McKellen perform exactly. solo in July. He's 85. This is his yeah. 85th birthday. I hope we don't sound ageist because, quite frankly, I don't feel that way at all. I think you, you should be no. able to perform no, as no. long as you like. But yeah. these Let's face reality here. Let's not be gentle about it. You know, it's funny. When I saw the tweets about Ginger Baker dying, I thought he had already died. <laughs> yeah. Yep. There are those people. Yeah. <laughs> I like what UB Blake said. Actually, a lot of people have said it. He said, if I knew I was going to live so long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> and that's, a, that's I kind of like that. Attitude. Yeah. Hope we hope I die before I get old. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yep. All right. I think it's time for our next tracks. Have you got something for us this week? Yes, this week in my new releases in Apple Music for You, I came across a, I want to say box set, but it's not in a box when it's digital. What do you call it? Uh, a pile of music. It's called Souvenir by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark. If I understand correctly, it's something like 50 of their singles and then some unreleased tracks and then some live tracks at the end from 2011, from 1983. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I, I really wish that Apple Music would have some more editorial content for things like this and that the record labels would upload content because I'm pretty sure that if they do, it can be added. I said earlier that Ultravox's Vienna might have been one of the first big hits that was made with synthesizers. And I think maybe Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark might have beaten them a bit with Electricity, Messages, Enola Gay. I think they came out in 1979, so that would have predated Vienna just a little bit. I really liked the first two Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark albums. I thought they were clever. I thought they were somewhat groundbreaking in the way that they were doing they were just a, a couple of people doing this synthesized music and making something that had a, a really full sound. And, you know, Electricity was released on Factory Records. It was supposed to be produced by Martin Hannett, but it wasn't. It was produced by a friend, soon-to-be manager Paul Collister, under the pseudonym Chester Valentino, taken from a nightclub called Valentino's in the nearby city of Chester. See what you can learn on Wikipedia? So in 1979, they opened for Gary Newman on his first British tour, and that was a big break because people, Gary Newman was hugely popular, even though I think less creative than OMD, and then they got a lot more attention. The first album came out in 1980, and 
It was essentially just two people. It was Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys, keyboards and drums, I believe. And it, it was a new sound, this poppy synthesized sound that wasn't like um, Tangerine Dream, that wasn't, uh, you know, that didn't, it wasn't like synthesizers overlaid on a Michael Jackson record. It was a really unique sound. And so I really liked the first album and the second organization. Didn't pay much attention to them after that. Some of the stuff on the third album was good, and then I totally ignored them after that. So going back to listen to some of this early stuff, the, the first singles, and eventually I'll get to this 1983 live concert and see what it's like. Bands like that are studio bands. You know, they're not really that good in concert, so I'm not that excited about that part. But it was nice to have this reminder of music that, you know, I do listen to every now and then and that I really find quite attractive. What about you? I found something that I like to listen to occasionally and uh, is sometimes attractive. It's uh, Mike Oldfield's Five Miles Out album. Now, I'm not a Mike Oldfield fan. I <laughs> just, you know... Uh, tubular bells was a thing that you heard on the radio a lot, and I, I never, I, th I don't even think I've ever listened to the whole of Tubular Bells. But um, the reason I discovered this album is because he wrote the song Family Man that was a hit for Hall and Oates. And I said, Well, I, gee, Mike Oldfield wrote this. I wonder what that sounds like. So I got a hold of the record years ago, not shortly after it came out, it came out in 1982. And I really liked it. Um, it's mostly instrumental. There are a couple of vocals on it, Family Man being one of them, sung by a woman named, I think her name is Maggie Riley. I don't know who she is. Mike Oldfield himself, he's a weird character. Um, if you don't know, Tubular Bells was the first album on Virgin Records. And they kind of eventually screwed him over. And uh, he didn't have much to do with them anymore. But he... Put out, he's put out 26 albums. Amazing output, but most of them are, seems to me, variations on the Tubular Bells theme. Um, but the music itself is, is, is really neat. Um, I like the way he plays guitar. He's got this unusual vibrato effect that I like. He, he's really good at layering synthetics and just fun to listen to. And this album, like, a, like several of his albums from the period, one side, we used to have sides, is one piece, and then the other side is like three or four or five more pop-centric songs. Not necessarily, you know, poppy, but so he could get some radio airplay. I'm sure that's why he made these, these shorter songs. Some of them took off. Family Man is actually a really interesting song, and it's, uh, it's about a guy who won't uh, leave his wife for uh, his mistress, which is a weird topic. For Mike Oldfield to write about, now that I think about it. But anyway, Five Miles Out, it's the sort of record I just used to throw on and, and have it on in the background. I really like the little themes in it, and, uh, and, and like I say, the guitar playing, and, and, and just the whole arrangement. It hasn't led me to listen to much else that he's done, but uh, I, I think this is a fun album. He's one of those people that found a formula, and it was a successful formula, and you know, Everyone in the 70s heard some of Tubular Bells because it was used in the movie The Exorcist. Right. And it set a tone for a specific type of music, and he was able to just, you know, keep riffing on that through the years. I, I noticed on Wikipedia, as you said, his albums are sequels. Some of his albums are sequels. Tubular Bells 2 in 1992, Tubular Bells 3 in 1998, Tubular Bells 2003 in 2003. So <laughs> he's still chugging along. I think he played at Symphony Hall in Birmingham last year to 
In fact. It's with him in a reel-to-reel machine, right? <laughs> this was episode number 160 of The Next Track. Thank you for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, tell a music-savvy friend or two. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>